This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Have you ever found yourself mindlessly scrolling for who knows how long? Have you ever wanted to throw your phone across the room for distracting you yet again? Well, today we're going to talk about how to reclaim our attention in a distracted age. Stay with us. Hey everyone, we're really excited that you join us for another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. Thanks for being here. If this is your first time, your second time, third time, and you haven't clicked that subscribe button, we'd appreciate it if you click the subscribe button on YouTube and the bell. If you're listening to us on a podcast player of choice, please subscribe to us. We're on all of them. New ones coming out actually every week. I get messages from different podcast groups that are picking us up. So again, thank you for being here. We want to keep on providing these episodes, our memes, our blogs, and all the work and even future work that we have envisioned for the Catholic gentleman. If we've inspired you, we'd love for you to jump over to patreon.com slash Catholic gentleman. Discern giving to us. We're just looking for your lunch money. We're not looking for your mortgage. And so, you know, whatever you can offer within that $5, $10 a month, uh, we'd be greatly appreciative. And I want to take a moment and just thank all of our current uh, patrons and, uh, and what you've done to allow us to continue moving forward with this um, men's ministry. So, Today, Sam and I are both really excited about bringing in an expert, uh, Josh Hochschild, on the show. He's going to be here. Um, He's done a lot of research, a lot of study, and actually has experienced in his life um, the damaging effects of technology, and uh, but also the benefits of it, right? He does a really good balanced approach of the fact that we can't just throw our um, phones in the toilet and, and be done with it, right? We've got to figure out that balance. And so a little bit first about Josh is that he is the professor of philosophy and director of philosophy of politics and economics at Mount St. Mary's University, where he's been there for 16 years. During that time, he had six years as the inaugural dean of the College of Liberal Arts. In addition to scholarly articles and books, one of which we're going to talk about today, he is an expert in medieval logic, metaphysics, ethics, social thought, it keeps on going, his uh, his rap sheet. So we're so grateful for him being here. One of the big things we want to talk about is the book that he co-authored with Christopher O. Bloom, which is A Mind at Peace. There it is, Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in an Age of Distraction. We encourage you to check it out. I'm going to put a bunch of stuff in the show notes about Josh, as well as this book and some other ways that you can follow him uh, later on. He lives with his four children in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Josh, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, John. This is a fun experience. Yeah, absolutely. So Sam and I have both read the book. Um, I I read it about a year ago. I actually moved uh, two months ago. And so my library is not even set up. And I actually look through books. I look through boxes and as humorous as and how apropos it is. Um, my distractions over the last few months have been great. And um, I don't know which box the book is in, but Sam had it there and I remember it well. So it's great. I used to have a, a bunch on my shelf, but I've given them all away. So I'm actually not in possession of a copy of the book right now. <laughs> I need that. It's a good problem. Yeah. The yeah. book lives within you and in, in your, in your wisdom. I don't so. know. I don't know. We'll <laughs> so I yeah. wanted to start out. Sam, did you want to start out? Sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I, yeah. I, I guess what I, I um, picked your book up off the shelf a few weeks ago, because I was feeling frustrated by, again, the distractions of technology. And uh, there's been many times when you feel like it just hijacks your brain. (laughs) Uh, It just knows how to manipulate your psychology in exactly the right way. 
so tantalizing like and you and, and there's been times when you know i'm at this i'm i'm at a stoplight and i would just find myself automatically going for my phone yep. and i'm like and then then i catch myself i'm like what am i doing like i'm here at the stoplight for like 30 seconds or a minute at the most and reflexively i there's something about that empty time that makes me want to reach for my phone and like this is a problem and yet what I love about your book is that you don't, uh, as John said, you don't advocate shunning technology um, because I think when we get frustrated, the temptation is, well, I'm just going to go back to a dumb phone or I'm just going to get rid of my phone altogether. And we see a lot of like the minimalist phones popping up where they have like zero features. They just make calls. And there's some advantages to that, I suppose. But what I like yours is the book thesis of your book is that let's grow through this temptation that te mm. technology pro uh, provides to us. Um, so I guess you just um, tell us a little bit about why you don't advocate, you know, being a Luddite or abolishing all technology, because some people that, that's the right answer. So, yeah. I, and that, that's a really good that's a really good question. And I'm glad you sensed that um, while it's very critical of modern technology, we're not trying to um, uh, sort of put a stop to it. Um, and the word you used, I think, is is exactly right. Temptation, uh, but there are different kinds of temptation. I mean, there's temptations to do things that are intrinsically wrong, and you have to do everything you can to um, to to avoid doing those things. But then there's temptations to overindulge, which which might be corrected by dialing back or abstaining in certain ways, but not because it's not because it's intrinsically evil, just because human nature is prone to go too far in one direction. So it needs mm -hmm. these correctives and disciplines. And I guess that's the attitude that um, that Chris and I had in, in writing the book. We weren't we weren't going to claim that um, technology is intrinsically evil. The digital technology is intrinsically evil, but it's it's um, it's very, very attractive. And it's designed, um, I mean, it's, it's not by accident, say, that you find yourself um, uh, compulsively checking your phone. It's designed to, to, to sort of get in, inside you like that. It's, it's supposed to be addictive. There are people who, whose whole job it is is to um, tweak the algorithms in social media apps to make them more addictive. Um, and, and, and seriously, like high-level scientists who study you know, how dopamine works in the brain and, and who study how, uh, how different colors affect, uh, you know, your retina when they, when, when you see them and all of these things are, are designed to, to make, to make your attention drawn deeper and deeper into the, into the screen. So that just means that um, we have to work very, very hard to think about what would be temperate use of these things. If, if, if it's going to be attractive, it's, if it's going to be something that draws us in, um, we're going to have to uh, work as hard as all of those uh, scientists and expert, experts are working to, to get us addicted to make sure we don't become addicted. And actually, I do think for some people, the right answer might be um, not to have one. Yeah. Um, just like yeah. for an alcoholic, uh, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't touch any alcohol. Um, and, and maybe the dumb phone is the right thing. Um, or in, in some circumstances or for, for a certain period of life or something like that. Um, so I, I, I'm also, I'm not opposed to um, any of the more radical strategies. And I actually think in the, in the long run, if, if, we, if we continue to have things like smartphones and they aren't replaced by some other level of mm -hmm. um, technology, you know, implants or the metaverse or whatever, um, <laughs> that, that they will be, they will, there, there will have to come some um, that are better designed so that we remain in control and that, that, that we have more choice over um, how we use them. Here's a very small thing. It, 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 it's, it's, it might sound almost trivial, but I think it's emblematic. Um, most of the smartphone iOSs make it very difficult for you to switch your phone from color to black and white. Yeah, um, You can do it. Um, but like the last time I looked on how to do it on my, on my iPhone, it's like six or seven steps, not one of which is very intuitive. No, you have to know where to look. You are, or you have to spend quite a bit of time fumbling around guessing. Um, 
you know, why do they do that? Well, because they don't want you to put it on black and white. Why is that? Because it's not as attractive. It's just as useful. And I've this this is going to sound uh, like silly and not not very uh, spiritually advanced. But as a as a discipline during Lent and Advent the last several years, I've put my phone on on grayscale. And it makes a huge difference to how much I'm, it, 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 it's a small thing. It's like not eating chocolate for, for Lent or like cutting back on whatever, you know, TV watching. Um, it's a small thing. It's a small sort of practice and discipline, but it, it's just one little effort to um, uh, make, make the device something more that, that you are deciding how you're going to use it rather than allow it to, to possess you. That's right. um, and I think in the future, you know, someone's going to, someone is going to realize, you know, we could actually design these things so that they foster virtue, not vice. Mm-hmm. And so there will be a phone that has a button that turns it grayscale. Yeah. It'll be easy. Everybody will know how to do it. Um, I love it. Maybe one of our listeners, that's you. So um, I, I appreciate that very much. And you do, you, I got that play on Francis Bacon, you know, that uh, technology can make a good servant, right. But a horrible master. And unfortunately we've just, fallen into that. Uh, I, I don't know about Sam, but I know that I've done the exact same thing, turning it into grayscale on your phone. And when you first experience it for a couple of days, like it's, it's almost repulsive. It's like, ah, oh, like it just, it just, te- you know, removes the, um, I'm sure that within their addiction can still set in, but, uh, you can overcome that, but it is a great deterrent. And so, um, I appreciate you doing that. I'd like to take a step back and just sure. ask, within your life, Josh, what inspired you to write about this? What were you noticing in your kids or in society or in your own personal life? Like, what was it that just compelled you to say, this is a great topic that we need to put down in paper and um, let's figure out how we can make that happen? Well, I mean, I have to give credit to Chris as as the sort of prime mover. Um, the, the, The idea for the book was his. Um, and he had a he had a vision for um, uh, what he thought we could do together, um, writing a book like this. And when he approached me, um, I, I felt like I got it right away, and I was excited to to collaborate with him on that. But I think um, maybe a better answer to your question: what, the reason I felt like I could understand what he wanted to do mm-hmm. um, is, is probably three things. First, just experiencing the smartphone in my own life and, and, um, a sense of, um, uh, guilt about, you know, how was it changing me? And I can trick myself into thinking that this is all good, but I know that there's ways in which I'm being distracted by it. Um, it's, it's sometimes easier though, to see problems in other people than in yourself. So I was seeing issues with my own kids right? They were, they were, some of them had their own uh, smartphone or were getting ready to have their own smartphone for the first time. And uh, the debate that every parent goes through about, you know, when to do that or how to limit it or what rules to set or what controls to put on the things. Um, And just realizing that my children were growing up with a different experience of the world, uh, uh, closer to digital natives, um, as as that phrase is used. Um, And and what a generational difference that was going to make. Um, and, and I think the third thing, so my own experience, my kids experience, but I I think my experience as a teacher, um, I've been full-time teaching for more than 20 years. And, um, so when I started, um, you know, these kinds of things didn't exist and I could have certain expectations for how students would experience an assignment, like read this essay, or, you know, we're going to be reading this book over the next few weeks. Um certain expectations for students' attention spans, for the way that they would read, for the kinds of uh, challenges and, and distractions that they would or wouldn't face. Um, and I mean, I, I don't think there, there's any teacher that would deny it's totally different now. It's totally different now. Um, I asked, I, 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 there, I have a favorite essay called um, Curiosity and Smartphones mm-hmm. uh, that I started assigning to students um, probably more than 10 years ago from when it first came out. Um, and I've, I've still, I've still assigned it on and off and, and it's not a long essay, um, by college academic standards. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's not an academic essay. It has some footnotes, but it's, it's an accessible essay, maybe 10, 12 pages. And I asked my students after reading it, you know, how many of you could read this 
um, all in one sitting without any interruptions, without looking at your phone. Nobody. They can't do it. Wow. Um, and so, you know, um, the, the, the experience of being assigned to read something or being assigned to write something and having a kind of distraction-free environment, um, what, it, what it means to give full attention to, to a certain kind of intellectual work and not have, um, you know, it would, it would be as if somebody had come along to all of the classrooms in the world and um, redesigned them as sports bars mm. with televisions everywhere and, you know, maybe options for like betting machines, um, and, but still expected teachers to, um, you know, conduct a Plato seminar in the same environment as, as what used to be uh, a seminar table and a, and a blank chalkboard. Um, it, it's, a, it's a different, it's a different um, environment that young people are growing up in. And I realized that there was a, a, a short window of time when we could take stock of that change because in another uh, 10 or 15 years, almost nobody's going to remember what it was like before, right? So we're, we're undergoing this vast experiment and we've got to take, we got to take stock of it as we go and, and make recommendations about where is it that we see the challenges? What is it that we're losing? Um, what, what, what virtues do we have to cultivate with, with greater intentionality in order to make sure that this transformation, um, you know, doesn't destroy us. Yeah. That's, Absolutely. that's the, that, those are the kinds of observations that led it to me. So being, you know, having a phone, having children and being a teacher and, and, and Chris has all of the same experiences. He's, he's a father at a similar stage of life. Um, he's been a teacher, uh, for about the same amount of time. Um, uh, and, uh, in the background, we've been thinking a lot about um, the, the the Catholic spiritual tradition, yeah. uh, the, the the tradition of moral psychology, which is technically the field that we're drawing on to write this book. Although I have to warn your listeners, it's not an academic book. It's not, uh, we're not we're not trying to um, advance a, a scholarly position. It, it, it's a it's a it's really a, a self help manual. It's meant to be yeah. accessible, but but. But what we draw on to address the, the modern challenges is, is the traditional Thomistic understanding of what human nature is and the powers of the soul and, and, and how it is that those powers can be strengthened through virtue. Amen. Yeah, I noticed the, uh, the chapters are, are, are mercifully short. Uh, <laughs> they're like two, three pages, which is uh, even even us uh, poor uh, modern individuals with short attention spans could probably manage two or three pages in one sitting. So, um, just they're a little digestible. Uh, yeah, I mean that. they're short, so you don't have you don't have to spend too much attention. But our hope is too that in the right context, that um, that makes it the kind of thing that could be um, part of a retreat, part of a spiritual right. discipline. Um, I, I, I hope it makes a great kind of Lenten book, uh, oh, maybe yeah. reading a chapter every other day and thinking about how it applies to your life. Um, and, and it's, it, it is, as you, I'm sure you noticed, every chapter ends with, um, some, some questions for self-reflection, almost like right. an examination of conscience yeah. so that the ideas in that chapter, you can think about how they might apply to your own life and what you can do, uh, to, to put into practice, whatever lessons you learn. Yeah, that was incredibly helpful for me and uh, the fraternity as we went through that, uh, went through the book, you know, we would read two chapters a week is how we did it. And then we would meet once a week. And, and we, since we had all had those reflective questions, um, you know, it made that conversation much easier. And I'd also say though, I love the amount of church wisdom that you pull in uh, throughout the chapters in the book, you know, not only the, the quotes or scriptures, um, but also the stories, you know, you have a lot of stories about um, different saints and different uh, uh, spiritual experts and people that have been striving for this sort of greatness. So um, I, um, it, it makes it very accessible. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a self consciously very Catholic book. Um, I've heard from Protestants who um, have have appreciated it and benefited from it because it's not trying to put off uh, non Catholics. I mean, it just frankly mentions saints and Catholic teaching in various yeah. ways. Um, one one uh, reader uh, commented that we could do something very similar for a totally secular audience. So sure. the, the the lessons 
of you know the practical lessons of virtues um, are are not really specifically Catholic. I think the Catholic tradition has special resources for channeling those and thinking about them imaginatively in the lives of saints and such. Yeah. But um, this this reader was right. There could be a, um, a a version of the book written in a slightly different key that that tried to have the same practical effect for. Um, a more secular audience because it's something that we're talking about human nature. We're talking about something that every human being is experiencing right now. And, and what people need is the language within which to formulate the problems that they're experiencing and, and some direction for what they can do to respond to those problems. Yeah. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about philosophy in general is people think, well, it's just abstractions. It's just like debating these complex ideas that have nothing to do with my daily life. Um, and, and philosophers have kind of taken on this uh, stereotype of, you know, these absent-minded people debating over meaningless things. But really, if you look at the original philosophers, the, you know, the Greek, Greco-Roman tradition, like it was very much practical. It was about living the good life. It was about uh, the here and now in a very uh, real way. Um, and like I just, this is like one more step towards bringing philosophy um, out of the ivory tower, so to speak, and back mm -hmm. to daily life, um, where it's eminently practical. These these yeah. ideas. Um, so, so I I think you're exactly right. Um, there are three characterizations of philosophy from uh, from Socrates, as portrayed by Plato, that I like to remind people of. Um, Philosophy, philosophy as therapy of the soul, care of the soul. Uh, philosophy as preparation for death. Um, and philosophy as the true political art. And these things are all connected, right? They're, they, are, they are all ways of expressing how philosophy is supposed to, to, to matter for how we live our lives, for, for, for what we do. And we, we care about truth for truth's sake, but truth for truth's sake matters because we're truth-seeking beings. And so our lives are going to be affected by how we orient ourselves towards the truth. Um, and, and these, they, they matter in, in the concrete details of everyday life and they matter in how we think of, of the, the course and, and direction of our whole lives, um, and how we live and how we live together. So, um, I, 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 I actually wish that more, uh, more people who studied philosophy made the effort to, um, show people how it's practical and relates to their lives. Um, I'm, I, I don't think I do it enough. Um, and I, and I think it was, um, a great blessing for Chris to invite me to do this with him or I, or I wouldn't have, uh, thought to, uh, participate in writing a book like this. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's an important test of the truth of, um, philosophy that it, it can, um, actually have a practical significance in the lives of, of real human beings. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's the modern, uh, postmodern philosophers kind of undid all of that by trying to create philosophies that actually contradicted your senses, contradicted your everyday experience and deconstructed everything to the point where you had no idea what's real anymore. Um, so I can see why people became dismissive of modern philosophy and sure. philosophers in general. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, to, I think you're right, but to complicate things a little bit, you could, you could charitably interpret some postmodern philosophy as a response to an over rationalistic approach mm -hmm. and a, a, an, an attempt to, um, in a sense, bring people back down to the reality of lived experience and, and the, import, the, the importance of not claiming to know more than you do, um, of, of being skeptical and, and trying to take seriously um, you know, the, the fact that, that we live in a complex world where people um, you know, can't, can't fully accord with um, you know, one sort of top-down prescription for how we all should live. Um, in a way, that's a very Socratic uh, reading of, of, I mean, in postmodernism, there's, there's different things that that means. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, 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 uh, we all, we all recognize the kind of 
um, sense in which postmodernism seems to be the enemy of truth. But mm. I, I think you could you could dig a little deeper and and um, try to describe it as a reaction to a, a false conception of how truth works and an, and a, and an attempt to be in a way more pragmatic or more sophistical in the in the original sense, right? We we yeah. think of the sophists as um, uh, dangerous people, the, the ones that Socrates criticized because he was the true philosopher. But a lot of the sophists were trying to apply thought to life. They were they were trying to help people live a better life. Yeah. And mm -hmm. there's a there's a therapeutic element to uh, some postmodern philosophy. Even. Yeah, mm -hmm. the intent yeah. in the mind of that philosopher for sure. I think that's very valid. Um, so I guess my mind went in a bunch of different directions, but you were talking about the secular aspect of, of this. And I think you're exactly right because um, I've been real big recently on, on neuroplasticity, right? And the idea of, you know, there's that saying uh, that, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And we just see what our phone is attempting uh, to, to grab us with, right? Where basically it's all about instant gratification. It's yeah. all about, you know, that uh, filling, um, you know, boredom with um, whatever sort of activity or engagement that we can, you know, currently grab within, you know, the tips of our fingers. And, um, and this is all changing us psychologically. Right. It's changing the fact that your students can't read uh, this article. We're not talking about sitting down and reading, um, you know, Kant or and, and take a step back. We're not even talking about sitting down and reading, you know, Lord of the Rings for a few hours. You know, we're talking about, yeah, reading pages of an essay in the double digits. And, you know, and I, you brought that up in your book, this idea that we that there are different uh, um scholars, right, that uh, bemoan the fact that they struggle to carry an argument or to carry even themselves, you know, to read for hours on end and follow everything about it. And really, I feel like it's important for our listeners to understand that we are being wired differently. And, and it is the intent of these organizations, of these platforms, everything from your email server the smartphone, the weight, the feel, the look, your email server, your your searching um, platform of choice, or Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, you name it, they're all you know vying for your attention because you're their product. And I think it's really important for us to uh, talk a little bit more about that in um, in in this explanation of how. Uh, the modern mind is being broken down into a very base level of what we are capable of achieving. I know you bring it up briefly in the book, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about it um, here. Yeah, sure. I, mean, uh, I think I think we mentioned it near the beginning of the book because um, it, it had been uh, very influential already. Uh, one of the first authors to draw attention to what you're describing, John, is um, mm. Nicholas Carr, his book, uh, called the shallows, um, and and he describes partly through personal experience, but also partly through studying, um, um, uh, you know, learning learning from current neuroscience, uh, this issue of neuroplasticity and how mm. the, the things that we do um, rewire our brains. Um, in in a way, I mean, we we know we know more today about the mechanisms for how that works, and we can talk about things like neurons. Um, but in a way, there's no surprise there, right? Mm. Aristotle talked about how when you perform an act repeatedly, you form a habit. And, and since we're embodied beings, right, forming of a habit is, is not just changing this sort of, um, you know, spiritual, invisible, immaterial aspect of you, right? We're embodied beings. So if, 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 if you develop the habit of imagining things a certain way, or if you develop the habit of feeling certain emotions in certain circumstances that we, we knew already, even before the neuroscientists told us that something was changing in our bodies, right? Aristotle might not have known exactly what brains were or how they were, but everything that neuroscience has, has discovered is, is entirely predictable in terms of a, a classical understanding of human beings as embodied social creatures who are what they are largely through socialization. We have, we have a kind of raw nature that, that gives us certain powers, but how do we use those powers determines how they're developed and, and what we become. Um, 
it's great that we can talk about that in terms of in terms of all the technical um, scientific mechanisms today. Um, but at the end of the day, what what the social media companies are trying to do is change your habits. Um, and it's not just to give you a dopamine rush and make you feel good. Sometimes they're they're trying to make you feel anxious. Um, sometimes they're trying to make you feel angry. Uh, they'll make sure to show you certain things that they know will provoke a response from you. Uh, they'll withhold things from you knowing that you're attentively waiting for them so that when they do give it to you, you um, are, are uh, sort of more committed to responding to it. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think we mentioned this study in the book, and, and I've talked about it in other circumstances. When I first heard it, it was sort of a new, um, new thing to me and a lot of people, but now, maybe by now it's, it's common knowledge. But if you heard of the, the studies that have informed how they design um, this, all the social media apps, but there are studies that they've done with, uh, with rats, Mm. Um, uh, to to show how it is to get them to to overfeed. So if you put a rat in a box with a button and they push the button and a pellet of food comes out, they'll push the button, a pellet of food will come out, they'll eat it, and they'll do that until they're full. Mm. And then they'll stop. Makes sense. Yeah. Because they're not hungry anymore. Mm. But if you if you tweak the button a little bit to randomize it, so that a piece of food doesn't come out all the time, the rat will keep pushing the button and keep eating the food. Right? Yeah. Now we're not, <laughs> presumably we're better than rats, but, it, but we're animals and there's a part of our yeah. brain that's, that's basically rat brain. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and it's not, not just for, for the appetite for food, but the appetite for a certain kind of attention or the appetite for a certain kind of uh, reaction from people. And so social media companies actually have slightly randomized the way that they parse out the likes or the retweets or the friend requests or whatever it is that shows up in your, in your social media to keep you waiting, to hold your attention, to make you keep refreshing and seeing if, you know, um, so, you know, I, I think this is a surprise to a lot of people. They sort of think it's automatic when someone likes what I posted that will automatically show up to me and I'll see it. Well, no, if they see that people are liking it in a certain pattern and then they know that you're still on waiting for the reaction, they'll hold it back from you for a while. Oh, and wow. then they'll, then they'll dribble it out. Yeah. You know, and they, there, there are complex computer algorithms to figure out how to make you more, right? Cause if you posted something and 30 people liked it right away and that was it, then you'd be done. Right. Yeah. Um, but they can, they can keep you distracted all afternoon you know, forget you're sitting at the stoplight or forget you were supposed to be watching your kids at the playground because you're, you're eager, yeah. you're like the rat who's just like pressing the button over and over again. It's scary, but that's, that's what they're trying to do. That's exactly um, right. And, you know, I think that's evil, <laughs> right. but I also think once we know that's what's going on, um, you know, we could try to, you know, change the programming or make laws about that, but we could also just do things to ourselves to, to try to impose some some self-discipline. It's not purely yeah. a matter of willpower. You can't just want to not do that. Yeah. You might actually have to develop alternative habits, right? So if you know that you're, if you tend to be a glutton, then you might have to fast more than is recommended for most people. Mm. Um, and so, so we have to do the same thing. Um, we have to do the same thing with our phones and it can be as simple. I mentioned before putting it on grayscale. It can be as simple as having a rule that, you know, phones don't go into your bedrooms. You keep them downstairs in the evening that there are certain times of day when everyone has their phones off that, and, and actually talking to students, they, they're very much aware that they, um, they're affected by these things and they don't like all the ways that they're affected by them. And they'll often have come up with their own tricks for, um, having periods of time when phones aren't on, or if, if they're going out with friends for a meal, putting all the phones somewhere and the first one to touch their phone has to pay for the meal. Or, I mean, you can, you can change the incentives so that you can, um, you can exercise a little bit of self-control and moderation. Yeah. Um, but, but that takes intentionality. You have it to does. want to do that and you have to be with people who are willing to do that with you. That's right. um, so it takes a community of people to decide we're, we're going to exercise self-control together. It's very hard for one person to stand against the tide. That's right. Yeah. The, the point you make, I think, uh, 
you, you said something earlier that I think is worth noting that we have an animal nature. Yes, we also have a higher order nature that we have in kind of uh, in, in common with the angels in a sense, uh, but also we have an animal nature. Like we have a, um, a spiritual being, but also a uh, material being. And a lot of people might be shocked by all that. You know, we're not animals, but but in a sense we are. And um, we see in a lot of our day-to-day life, we succumb to that lower, those lower impulses, um, you know, cravings for sweets or things like that, that are just kind of like oh, biological in a sense. Um, and, or even just um, other un- unconscious impulses that come from kind of that lower nature. Um, and yet we see a lot in philosophy and um, in the, in the philosophical tradition that there's kind of this principle that the higher should rule the lower, like those those passions and instincts that are kind of have, have mind of their own sometimes and those cravings and those appetites um, should be ruled by the higher part of our being, um, the, um, the reason or the intellect. Um, and uh, so in, in your book, you talk a lot of, it's just not, it's not just negative. Um, yeah. it, it's very, very positive book in the sense that you're talking about, like you said at the beginning, developing all these powers of the soul that we, we have as beings that are kind of midway between heaven and earth. Like we have the lower nature and God with the animals, but we also have this amazing spiritual capacity. So like, how can we start to develop, kind of flex our spiritual muscles or our soul muscles, so to speak, um, and develop some of these virtues that can help us be master of ourselves and make these decisions consciously. You know, you mentioned some of the concrete things, but uh, but really like the the things you talk about, like watchfulness, like that's not a that's not a thing we think about very often when we think about our smartphone. What what does watchfulness mean in regard to that? Mm. So you can introduce us to some of those powers that we sure. we can start to develop and how we can develop them. Yeah, and this is this is a good reminder that the ultimate purpose of the book is really to help people be better friends and and more capable of prayer. Yeah. That's that's what we hope. And and those two things are related, obviously, because prayer is is, a, is friendship with God, and we're not going to be good friends to others unless unless we have a a developed prayer life. Um, uh, and, and both of those things are fulfillments of our nature as, as political animals, as social animals, as, as animals that, that have a rational nature that seeks truth in, in the context of community. Um, so that's how, that's how God made us. So that's what we're designed for. Um, and that means perfecting, ultimately perfecting the highest intellectual powers of our soul. Um, and as you said, Sam, higher powers are supposed to rule the lower, but we often have to get the lower powers in order before we can even exercise certain things, higher powers. I mean, anybody, anybody with kids knows that there's certain, there's certain things that you just can't, um, you know, uh, expect a child to be able to handle cognitively either because of their age or be a combination of their age and the fact that they're hungry or haven't gotten enough sleep or something. I mean, you just can't expect, you can't expect, um, you know, a child not to be grumpy if they're missing out on sleep Um, or a child to understand, you know, that the the, the reason why you're, you're making a certain decision for them. um, If, if, if they're already angry and throwing a tantrum, like, so you have to wait for them to come back and to, into some possession of their faculties. Well, ultimately we're all children. We're all, we're all immature. And so we, we have to, we have to worry not just about trying to flex the highest, most rational part of us, but um, that, that needs the help of the rest of our, of the rest of our soul being well integrated. So the book is structured to essentially to, to talk about um, virtue from the, from the bottom up. Uh, the last section, the third section, is about intellectual virtue properly. Mm-hmm. But if you notice, the first section is all about the the, the classic um, cardinal virtues of action, right? Yeah. Tem- temperance or self-control, courage, um, technically not virtues of the intellectual part at all, right? But virtues of the appetitive part and of the spirited mm-hmm. part, to use Plato's terminology, Um and and essentially the pleasures of of what it what it is to be um, 
sensing animals who live in a world of, of physical bodily um, uh, pleasures and pains? And how do we, how do we discipline those? Um, so we have to attend to that first. And actually, the first thing that we need to do sometimes, even before doing that, is just remind ourselves that we are moral agents in control of our actions. Hmm. Um, there's all kinds of things trying to convince us that that's not even the case, that we're just, you know, bags of emotions and chemicals that can't, that, 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 that have no responsibility at all. So the reminder that we're moral agents, that, that we have to exercise agency through acts of temperance and courage, uh, that makes up the first half of the book. And then I, I actually think that the, the crucial part of the book and the, the the place where Chris and I make the most uh, kind of unexpected contribution to the, to mm. the uh, conversation, but that is most relevant to um, the challenge of digital media is the middle section of the book, which discusses, um, for lack of a better term, what, what the Aristotelian tradition calls the interior senses. So not mm. yet properly intellectual powers, but not exterior physical sensations and pleasures and pains, but rather how our imagination works, how our memory works, how the, the way that you experience, not, not physically experience, but sort of make sense of the world through the narratives that you tell yourself, how all of those are affected by social media and how, how we need to take control of those things. Um, and that the, the chapter on attentiveness, I think, is a good example of that. It's not just about the eye as as an organ of exterior senses, but about how how do you shape what you're giving attention to, right? Yeah. When you stop at the stoplight and you're tempted to look at your phone, right? It's because there's a part of your mind that's already giving attention to whatever's on the digital world, wondering if you got responses to that post or wondering if you have a new email or whatever it is. Um, but you could be thinking about anything, right? This is what's disappointing when you realize that moment of weakness. Like I, I could have been praying you know, I could have been thinking about my my relatives who asked me to, you know, to remember a special intention. I could be I could be planning. I could be thinking. About, there's so many other things you could give your attention to. Yeah. Um, and so we actually um, we we need to to spend time cultivating the interior life even before we talk about um, intellectual activity. Properly speaking, just. The, our, the the cognitive life that is influenced by by the mm -hmm. exterior, but that we still have to maintain control control over. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I don't I don't know if that directly answers your yeah uh, your question, Sam. But um, definitely, I mean, it's 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 a hierarchy of, of needs. Almost like we have to start with the lowest part of our being first. Yeah. Um, before we can kind of work our way, you know, we can't just jump straight to the most advanced powers of our our soul but we have to restore harmony yeah uh at the most basic level first i mean I, i'm I, i'm on twitter it's one of my guilty pleasures it's one of the ways in which i'm a hypocrite and i'm impure I mean, I wrote this book <laughs> and people think i must be this spiritual sage and i'm not I'm, i draw on what i recognize as spiritual wisdom that i need to embody better um and you know one of the things i noticed on twitter it's just so common that people respond to a, a, a tweet from a certain kind of emotional state and that I'm, I'm not criticizing that that's human but we should bring emotion to things yeah but but if the emotion is too strong or disordered it, it actually can prohibit proper cognitive functioning right? so like you could be so angry at what somebody else says that you respond before you actually even understand what they said or how it's part of a larger conversation or argument yeah. and how it, how it might actually be relevant to you in a way that doesn't have to make you angry. But if you start mm -hmm. from a position where certain things trigger you and make you angry and you can't, then, then and, and of course, th there's something deeply human about that, but it's the, it's the more animal side of our nature, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's not something that we should always be proud of that, that that if, if, if we're always responding by letting the emotions lead and we're not pausing to ask, okay, how should I properly understand that? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm giving that, try, just to try to give a very practical example of how this manifests itself. We have a chapter late in the book where we, we try to talk about the, the, um, the elements in, in properly assessing rationally a proof for the existence of God, which is a very high yeah. level intellectual exercise. Right? And I'm not saying your emotions shouldn't be involved at all, but if, if you are 
if, if, if otherwise your inner interior life, your emotional life, your cognitive life is that of a child who's about to have a tantrum, you, 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 you're not ready to do metaphysics. Yeah. You know, and, and that's okay. Not everybody's supposed to do metaphysics, but, but also maybe you shouldn't have strong opinions about metaphysics if you're not ready to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So many good points. And, you know, I was reading a study recently in my, you know, um, job as a marketer, uh, that almost 80% of people will like share or respond to a post before ever clicking on it to actually read whatever article it is. And that just that impulse, right. To, to be heard and to be connected. And maybe somebody's going to be looking at my likes. Um, and, and I appreciate your honesty because it's the same thing. I remember reading this book and, uh, and really enjoying it. And then, uh, you know, uh, watching an engaging series and having to watch that second or third episode, you know, <laughs> you know, still knowing what's Netflix being. just cues up the next episode. for you. Exactly. And still knows what, uh, the effects that it has on, on the soul and the mind. And I, um, I mean, it's, it's been, you know, frequent in my confession of, of just, you know, I know it's doing this to me, but I still allow it to happen, you know, and it's such a good point. Um, and I, I just like to comment that this morning in the morning offering, right. So I was uh, praying the morning offering and I read in Ephesians that it, in, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, episode that we're going to do here. And in Ephesians, it says your inmost being must be renewed. And I was like, how perfect, right? That on the day that we're talking about this, and I love that hierarchy that you've just presented to us because there's another aspect of the book that this goes into, and it's about filling the void with something that is good, right? We can't just um, we can't just assume that you know these these natural emotional desires, um, you know, that lead us to boredom or lead us to wanting more uh, interaction and engagement and um, uh, you know, self-pleasure is all of a sudden going to be, you know, removed by not looking at your phone, not watching your TV and not spending more time on your computer, you know, or video games or whatever the case might be that we actually have to fill them with that, which is true, good, and beautiful. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. No, that's, that's a, um, really good reminder. Um, any, Again, any parent knows you can't just say no to your kids. You have to give them positive things to do as substitutes for whatever it is that you don't want them to be doing. Um, so yeah, it's not enough just to say, okay, you have to limit your, your screen time or um, uh, something like that. But you know, you you can ask yourself, are there things that I could be doing instead that would be more beneficial? Right? Um, is going for a walk better for me right now than spending another uh, you know window of time? Um, engrossed in a screen is is picking up an old hobby um, that that I that I used to love and I've let it I've let it atrophy um, is learning something new you know um, you know maybe you've always wanted to be a better artist and so you want to get a sketchbook and just practice yeah. sketching um, there's so many different things that people could be doing that that don't bear the same risk of overindulgence and that have all kinds of added benefits that 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 um, involve using your whole body and not just your eyes and your thumbs and that connect you to a wider world and connect you to um, a, 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 a sense of, of uh, beauty and transcendence uh, that, that the phone isn't designed to connect you with. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to trivialize it by just sort of offering a group of a list of examples, but yeah. I do think it's important for people to reflect on, okay, if I know, if some part of me knows, as we all do, that I spend too much time doing this thing, th- then there's a cost that I'm not doing something that I could have been doing. If, 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 if I lived 50 years ago and I didn't have a phone, I, I, I wouldn't be doing this. I would be doing something else, right? Maybe I'd, maybe I'd have a, a carpentry shop and I would be building things, or maybe I would be, you know, uh, making up stories to tell my kids instead of watching TV with them or, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying that watching, watching a show with your kids is a bad thing to do either, but we, each, each time we do something like that, we're making a choice and there are things that we're not doing. Yeah. Um, and, and we should remember um, that, that many of those things are, are valuable and we don't want to lose them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Letting, letting a musical instrument that you used to play, uh, letting that 
that skill atrophy instead of cultivating it again or teaching your kids a musical instrument. Um, yeah. All, all valuable things in and of themselves, but also part of forming a whole, a whole person and giving them a, a wider experience of how, uh, how to engage the world and, and, and how to uh, develop the imagination and, and envision um, an, an order of life beyond the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like what you're saying about it forming the whole person. Though, I mean, um, the, the French philosopher Simone Weil, you know, she wrote she, she wrote a fascinating letter to Catholic school students. They were, I think, it was like middle school or whatever the French equivalent of that was, uh, you know, seventy five years ago or whatever. But but uh, she she wrote a fascinating essay about how mm-hmm. attention is a preparation for prayer. Yeah. Um, and even the most meaningless things done with attention uh, can cultivate the soul disposition that we need to pray. Um, and she talked, she gives a specific example about wrestling with a math problem and how that can be so difficult. Um, and yet on the other side of that, if you can master that, the attention necessary for that, you can bring that same awareness, that same ability to concentrate um, to your relationship with with God and uh, in prayer. And um, so this isn't just about you know not our, our smartphone you know distracting us or, or you know not being able to be productive at work, but this is really about every aspect of our being um, from from the most fundamental um to the highest parts of our nature no i i think that's right and i think um a lot of a lot of schools are realizing that uh, there are traditional um activities and behaviors that um they thought they could do away with because now computers can do these things for you um but it turns out that say just as basic a thing as learning handwriting well is not just about legibility in paper communication. Yeah. There's a kind of discipline and control. You you know you learn you learn motor motor control, but you also um, start to appreciate. Uh, you, you know you 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 learn more about about spelling and the history of language. Um, you, you get more of a feel for the rhythm of 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 uh, well crafted sentence. Um, there's all kinds of things that were sort of built into, you know, such a simple thing as teaching kids handwriting, which yeah. technically speaking, we don't need to do anymore. There's, a, there's, there's really no reason anybody needs to write anything on paper anymore. We could, we could, if we had to, we could live without that, I guess. Yeah. Um, but think about what would be lost in terms of, in terms of um, how it is that people relate to their language and how it is that people give attention to the formation of sentences and, um, so, so even if you think it's useless, right, it, yeah. it's worth doing for the sake of cultivating the power of attention. Even if, even if you're never going to use that math theorem again after you've learned it, right? The exercise of abstracting the mind to, to comprehend an abstract mathematical theorem strengthens the mind. You yeah. have a stronger mind after doing that than you did before. And that, that can't, you know, that can't be a bad thing. That's right. You know, and, the, the creative and productive elements within our person, you know, can, can really come to light, you know, instead of just this, this consuming, you know, which is, is just overtaking mm-hmm. our persons in the modern world. Yeah. I, uh, I do want to ask just in conclusion, you know, what is uh, the one thing you would want to leave our listeners with the thesis or the, the the statement that you want to make to our listeners about kind of the importance of this topic. Um, because I think we have so many voices coming at us all the time saying, this is important. This is important. Um, but why should they care about this topic specifically? Um, well, I mean, I, well, I care about this. I think that the, the advent of portable personal digital devices 
um, is one of the biggest technological changes in human history. Mm. Um, every technological change brings along new habits, new relationships, new perspectives, new expectations for life. Um, and human beings have always negotiated those and figured out how to live with them, right? Or, or, or made peace with the cost of, of whatever is lost versus the gain of whatever has come along. That's true of television. It's true of cars. It's true of trains. It's true of writing. Plato talks about how the very advent of writing transformed the way that human beings related to their memory. And I'm sure he's right about that. Um, but this change has been very fast um, and very comprehensive. Um, and I, I just think it's important for as many people as possible to be taking stock while we're going through this change, or I've called it a kind of great experiment, a social experiment. And we yeah. don't know how we will ever take account of the results of this experiment, but we're all subjects of it. Um, we, we, we should be taking stock of what, what it is that we're losing and how it is that we can minimize what's lost and, and capitalize best on what's gained mm. through this social transformation. And then I guess the other thing that I, I do want to make sure, because um, anytime you talk about technology and, and social change, it can sound like it's um, you know, all darkness and warning or, or that we're being Luddites. I, I, I actually think a, a key... Um, message of the book is hope yeah. um, and there's no reason to despair there's a lot of reason to be worried and concerned but no reason to despair um, one of the things about this transformation is that i think it forces us to take stock of our inner lives in a way that maybe we hadn't for a long time um, if if the way that that your your use of a cell phone or your children's use of a cell phone or your parents use of a cell phone or your friend's use of a cell phone is making you sort of worry. What is this doing to me? Mm. Right. That's, that's a signal. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a signal that could point you to something, um, really, really beneficial to you in your life. Uh, and, 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 um, I have every reason to believe that the spiritual wisdom of the Catholic tradition can, can, can answer those concerns, right? But we we have to do the work to, to bring it to bear. You know, Plato talks about courage and temperance in the Republic. So we have to do the work to talk about how do current courage and temperance apply to our lives in um, in 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 the world of modern digital media. Um, we can do that, um, but but we have we have to do the work. And I think there's every reason to hope that if we if we do it, we will uh, uh, we will be strengthened from. It. So well said. Yeah, what an opportunity, right? Temptation is friends to the faithful, and this is the temptation and the opportunity that that we have in front of us in the modern world here. And yeah, take advantage of that opportunity. Work on your inward being and work on these different practical um, tips, but we have to understand, we have to come from that knowledge first and foremost, that acceptance, that understanding, and then, um, then grow from there. That's really well said. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for engaging, guys. It means a lot to me that the book, um, you know, uh, had, had relevance to you and, and, and you felt like it was helpful in your lives. And it's great to be able to talk about it with you on your show. It really was. So, Josh, where can men find I'm going to put all this stuff in the show notes, but where can men find you more about you? Um, I don't know if you have any um, essays and articles that uh, that might be floating around out there. Uh, would love to hear anything that you'd like to share. Um, yeah, I mean, as long as you're willing to pray for me and my use of social media, you can find me on Twitter at um, Josh Oakshield, <laughs> just all around together. Um, yeah. uh, I, I, in addition to scholarly articles, um, and and I, they, you know, you can find me on Academia, where a lot of my scholarly articles are linked. Um, I, I have written for um, uh, magazines like First Things and Common Wheel. Um, and um, yeah, there's sort of no one site where all of that's yeah. aggregated. I have a profile page at Mount St. Mary's um, in, in the, in the uh, employee directory. And Great. some of the recent publications are there and links to other sites that have more, more publications are there. So that might be the best place if people are trying to um, see other things that I've written. Awesome, Josh. Well, thank you. I'm really grateful for you being here. Thank you for you joining us. Um, 
you know, in the age of the selfie, we can all fall into selfishness. And so we're here to <laughs> call men towards uh, something greater and a higher ideal as our, our lives as men in the Imago Dei. And so we just really appreciate for you adding to that. Well, and so, thank you guys and blessings to you. This is a, this is a ministry and uh, I wish you well. Oh, thank you so much. And Sam, you know, as we end every episode. Be a man, be a saint. Thank you.